Before we get started, I want to tell you about the sponsor for this week's episode. AB Jets is a great story and great company. I'm not exactly flying around on private jets during this stage of my life, but if I were, I'd be calling AB Jets. They're one of the safest private air companies in the world. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S. This podcast is also sponsored by My Story. Have you ever thought about what if you could have your own audio and video interview for someone you love to keep and share for generations to come? What better way to keep and remember the life and story of someone you love than your loved one's own interview in their own voice? This is the perfect way to make sure your loved one's story stays with their descendants for future generations to come. Go to mystorytold.org to learn more. Again, that's mystorytold.org to learn more. Now we're going to get back to the show. Bezos didn't start Amazon until he was like 31. And I'm not saying we're building companies like that, but a lot of people in today's world think if you're not like Mark Zuckerberg, like building a company when you're 19, like you have no shot at doing it. Like, I think people are better suited to build companies in their 30s and 40s. Like that's almost a sweet spot because you're confident in what you've been doing, but you're not like too set in your ways, but you don't see the future. Like 30s and 40s, you know enough about how things work, but you also know enough about the future where like, I think people will have a better shot of being successful in those two decades than they do right out of college. Because when you're right out of college, you don't really know anything. My guest today is Sam Sawyer. Not many people would leave their career at the top of their field to launch a startup disrupting the space that they once built their career in. After leaving Dallas, Texas and working for Silicon Valley-based Zero Down, Sam launched his own venture-backed company called Archetype, where he is founder and CEO. After an early stage investment round by Mucker Capital, Sam is building out Archetype and growing it throughout the Southern United States. Sam believes the future of residential real estate will continue to change dramatically and disrupt the old way agencies do business. I had a great time with Sam, where you'll learn Contrary to standard behavior, while you're better positioned to take risks and build companies in your 30s and 40s versus playing it safe, what makes a great early stage investment relationship, why Mucker Capital is a great partner in what they do to invest in and deliver value to their founders, why raising too much funding can crush you, the impact of Zillow and how this has transformed the industry. First Principles Thinking, and why this drives Sam and how they build Archetype, and much more. Please enjoy this week's episode with Sam Sawyer. Sammy, thanks for coming on this afternoon, man. Excited to be here. Glad we got to do this. You know, I don't know what what year this was, but I know you and I have known each other a long time, similar age, your mid-30s. 
But you were named top 30 agent by the National Association of Realtors at a very young age in your 20s in Dallas, Texas. You were making a bunch of money, had a great niche in Dallas in a very high-income area, selling real estate, built your name there, working for some of the most well-known names in the industry. What do you think about you personally made you want to give that up, quit, move on and go to Silicon Valley and work at a startup? Yeah, I think, so I guess I started in the real estate world when I was 19 in Dallas. I got my license one summer. And so I had been in the business for even when I was 27 or 28 or whenever I got the 30 under 30 thing, which was a cool honor. At that point, I had almost been in residential real estate for a decade because I started when I was 19. And I kind of knew, I probably knew when I was like 26 or 27 that I didn't want to be a real estate agent forever. I mean, it was an incredible job and I loved doing it, but I just always wanted to be a part of something bigger and building like my own business. And at some point I knew I just had to uh, make the move. I obviously still love real estate because that's what I'm doing now. And that's what I did. But the the opportunity to go out to Silicon Valley and work in San Francisco in that environment was was pretty out of nowhere. I wasn't looking for anything. My friend, James Bashira had been out in San Francisco for a while and had sold his company to Airbnb and had a good network out there and knew these guys that were starting up this company called Zero Down. And they they needed a real estate person and they hadn't started the company yet. And I flew out there under the radar. My assistant at the time, Meg, almost killed me when I got back and told her that I was going to leave the industry. And she felt like I'd lied to her for two days, but I was worried about her starting rumors. She will listen to this and still want to kill me. Um, (laughs) But I just knew at some point I had to like make the move out of the industry. I wasn't necessarily trying to go to Silicon Valley, but I wish I had gone there when I was like 22 years old and learned a ton and met a lot of great people. And it kind of led me to where I am now starting this new cloud-based residential brokerage, just kind of building, you know, a new business model in a really outdated industry. Yeah. So is it just the fact that you felt that you were comfortable with it or that you had figured it out in in a lot of ways and, and there was a bigger challenge that you wanted to tackle? Or is it that you knew that you would be somewhat restricted if you only built a company off of your own production as a high-end real estate agent in one of the wealthiest parts of the country? Yeah, I think it was more, I just, I loved what I was doing. I mean, I still love residential real estate. Uh, I had been doing it so long that I felt like it wasn't challenging anymore. And I had reached, you know, somewhat of the top of the industry and the city. And I had a great experience and like, I just kind of wanted to take the skills I had learned and, you know, pivot to a different part of the industry. And the, the zero down company, it was, you know, a different part of the real estate world. It was essentially a new age rent to own mortgage type company. So it wasn't even a brokerage, but the guys that started it had previously started a company called Zenefits and it had a lot of success. And it was just kind of a cool deal. I, you know, 
I had never moved out of Texas since living there. I'd only lived in Memphis and Dallas and I knew that I wouldn't stay in San Francisco forever. I thought I would have been there a little bit longer, but I really just knew at some point I had to make a move. It was a cool opportunity. And everyone in Dallas thought I was absolutely insane and crazy. And some people still think I live in San Francisco listening to this right now. (laughs) But um, I'm back in Texas and I love being in Austin. And this kind of feels like a new age Silicon Valley. Honestly, there's so many companies being started here and it's a fun place to be. Yeah. Was it a weird thing to process when if you might have asked 10 people of all different walks of life, how they would handle it. And then maybe one or two other people would have said, screw it. I'd, I'd, I'd go for it. I mean, was that a weird conclusion to get to? Yeah. Everyone, uh, 95% of the people thought that I was making a bad decision. Jonathan Rosen, who I used to work with and we started a brokerage together. He was one of the few people that uh, understood and thought it was awesome. I, I remember when I told him, he was like, well, yeah, you got to go for it. You should go tomorrow. I'm like, okay, there's one supporter. Um, (laughs) But it was hard because I was much younger than a lot of people that I worked with. They had kids and families. And so asking those people for their perspective was completely different than asking, you know, someone our age. James Bashira helped me think through it. He was like, you can always go back to selling real estate. You're good at it. You know, you wouldn't even miss a beat. So it was kind of like, I didn't feel uncomfortable doing it. I was excited to go. And I literally uh, moved like a month after I had the first interview with these guys. I was like, well, if I'm going to go, I'm just going to go. So I still owned a house in Dallas. I just kind of left it there. And then (laughs) I kind of moved and lived in an Airbnb in San Francisco for three months and didn't really have anywhere to live. And uh, yeah, it was awesome. Was it humbling in any way going from kind of being a big fish, not in a little pond, Dallas in a little (laughs) pond, but going from a big fish at a young age to working for somebody else in their company that they had started? Yeah, I I mean, a little bit. It was, so when I joined Zero Down, it was just the founders, three guys. Uh, I was the first employee, I guess you you would say, outside of the founding team. And they had just, the company was in Y Combinator in 2019. And I joined even before we started doing that. So it was super startup. It wasn't even like I was joining an established company. So it, yeah, it felt different being like somewhere where I didn't know everything and like every, like every day, you know, waking up there, it was just kind of like going and working on this new company. And my old life was like, you know, selling houses all day and knowing exactly what was going on. So, I mean, the weirdest thing was just being in a city where I only knew like three people (laughs) where in Dallas, I knew tons of people and had been there, you know, SMU with SMU included, plus the time after I had been there like 12 years. So yeah, it was weird to go to a city where you don't know anyone and like, you know, on the weekends, you don't really know what to do, but it was a good thing. It, you know, I grew a lot as a person and got really into cycling, road biking, and just kind of like became, became more focused on what I really wanted to do career wise. And I think that's kind of, you know, what's led me to start this new company. When you say grow a lot as a person, this, I'm not a therapist. This is not a psychology <laughs> podcast. I'm just trying to kind of synthesize what you're saying. Is that you're kind of stripped away from everything that's comfortable and you make a bold decision. Yeah. And you don't have a lot of the extra things in life that can distract you or consume you. So you had to, you really kind of, you made a decision that made you feel uncomfortable, but then you also kind of had a lot of time to kind of know internally 
what you really wanted. Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, 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 definitely. That's what I mean. It's like you're in a new city. You you don't even know where like the grocery store is. I mean, literally, like I had been to San Francisco once or twice before, but no more than like four days of my life. So you just get somewhere, you know, like three or four people. And so you have a lot of free time. So it kind of, you just have a lot of time to think and walk around and you're not like on this hamster wheel of like doing the same thing every day where, you know, you don't even realize you're doing the same thing every day, but you are when you've been doing something for so long. And it just kind of is like a reset to figure out, you know, what you want to do and where you want to go and things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you've, you've lived in Dallas, Silicon Valley, now Austin. You're from Memphis, which is obviously where I met you and where yeah. I've first developed my relationship with you. But from living in, you know, those four different cities, having friends from around the country, are there any unique perspectives or observations that you've been able to develop or see about society, how people work, how business works in each of these different parts of the country that are so unique in their own ways? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, Texas is an interesting place in itself. Um, it has a Southern vibe where, you know, like Memphis, everyone's very nice and outgoing and friendly and all these things. But in Texas, I would say it's this very like entrepreneurial, lots of very motivated people, super hardworking environment uh, in Dallas, very intense, I mean, intense pace, much faster work pace. Well, you know, I've never worked in Memphis in my career life, but Dallas had a pace almost, you know, it felt like, you know, like LA or New York, where it's like people work a lot you know, it's very competitive. And I think that was a good thing starting out because even though I was younger, I was competing with people that had been in the industry for a long time and it made me kind of grow up fast and work super hard. San Francisco is a different pace, but some of the smartest people, you know, in the world end up in that city just because it has such a reputation for this, you know, boom or bust startup culture. And it's the real deal. I mean, it was an incredible place to be and some of the smartest, wealthiest people in our country live there. Right now, a lot of them have moved, but I was there before the pandemic and, you know, in every coffee shop and everywhere you go, there's people starting businesses. So that was pretty awesome. Austin is really honestly a mix of San Francisco and Dallas and a little, you know, a little bit. Obviously right now it's experiencing tons of growth. A lot of San Francisco and LA companies have moved here. A lot of my friends from San Francisco are now in Austin, but the energy in Austin is pretty unreal with the amount of companies being started here. It reminds me of San Francisco. And I really think Austin will become like one of the mega cities of the United States, you know, between San Antonio and Austin, it will almost be like a Dallas Fort Worth. Austin, you know, is barely cracked a million people recently. Everyone thinks this city is like multiple millions of people. It, it's, honestly feels smaller than Memphis, except there's a river running right through the middle of it. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, all, all are great. I, I'd always wanted to live somewhere outside of Texas and I just kind of stayed in Dallas after SMU because 
graduated in the depths of the financial crisis and literally no one could get a job. I'm not even sure if I would still be in residential real estate if I hadn't graduated at the same time, but. Yeah. Is there a sense of risk or short-term planning that can happen in a place like Austin or San Francisco that you don't see in other parts of the country, like the South or, or other cities? I think San Francisco is unique because literally since the 70s, that's where the entire technology industry has been built, you know, starting with like Hewlett Packard and, you know, like the early 90s, like Netscape. There were so many companies that started there that changed the world. And just that culture is built up to where, you know, it has this reputation of being kind of this magical, mythical place of people doing crazy things. And it definitely feels like that. I mean, it was getting really crowded when I was there and it was growing a ton and housing prices are at all time highs. And now I think after the pandemic, a lot of that has shifted to other cities and, you know, that might have changed forever, but I think there's a lot more like risk taking and entrepreneurial like spirit in Texas and places like San Francisco than maybe Southern cities, not nothing bad, you know, or no, no reason why that is. I think, in the South, a lot of people that are working there, you know, are working in industries that have been in those cities for a long time. So I think just the industries that define California and, you know, Austin now being a big tech center, I think it's just kind of a geographical thing. I don't, I think a lot of people that live in Southern cities would love the pace and the culture in some of these cities, but maybe they've just never, you know, experienced it. Yeah. And I guess also, is it a fair way to look at it that if the number of people that move to a new market, a new city each year is substantially a lot higher in one area than another, then people in one city, let's say where there's a lot less people moving there each year, then the people there over time are going to be people that have always been there or their families have been there. Right. And so they're more kind of native to that area versus some of these other cities that have a lot more of people moving there from other parts of the country or the world those, oh, yeah. in theory, are risk takers themselves because the fact that they left to go there, so then therefore there's more of a spirit of risk or adventure potentially. I mean, is that a fair Oh, way? yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with that. Like, I think most of the people you meet in San Francisco are not from there. I mean, it's amazing how many people I'm friends with that were born in other countries. You know, like walking down the street, it was primarily Asian and Indian you know, people and people that were there on visas, lots of people that had just gone to college in the U.S. and were trying to figure out how they could stay in the country. And then, you know, a lot of like West Coast school type people, like I only met like one other person that had gone to a school in the South, but most of the people went to like Ivy League schools that we worked with, you know, or had gone to USC or Berkeley. It was just kind of cool to meet people from that part of the world. But yeah, definitely people that were showing up in San Francisco were crazier people that wanted to take some risk and try to like be a part of building a big company. But I think that city's kind of built that into their kind of DNA over the last few decades. And now I think Austin is becoming like that a little bit too, but we'll see. I don't know. Yeah. What was the experience like for you to go back a little bit? You worked on a company called The Collective, right? That sold a compass. And so you helped the sale of that company after you had started with uh, Briggs Freeman, is that right? Yeah, yeah, started at, or Briggs Freeman Sotheby's and then left 
there with two other agents uh, and started the collective. And then, yeah, the collective was only around about 11 months. What do you see with that experience helping sell the collective to Compass? Are there things that you saw helping that deal happen that kind of gave you foresight into the future that we're going to help you as you built your own? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think, yeah. So when we left Sotheby's and started the collective, I mean, we weren't leaving to start a company to sell it. We thought that that, I mean, I thought to this day, I would still be working at the collective. At the time, Compass was rapidly expanding across the country. They raised over a billion dollars from SoftBank and other venture capital firms. And the year they bought our firm, they bought like 10 other firms around the country, a bunch of firms in LA or in California, Chicago, us. There was a number of acquisitions they made that year. So we were a smaller firm in Dallas, but we had a lot of high-end agents at the collective. So we kind of fit their demographic. And so they, you know, at the time they were just expanding by acquisition and we kind of fit their model and we love what they were doing. Yeah. Being part of that was awesome. I mean, they were, you know, they just went public recently, but that's one of the most innovative companies in the residential space in a long time. But yeah, when I started my new company, I kind of looked back at what Compass has done and how they built their company. And Compass has a lot of cool tech. Their brand is awesome. But at the end of the day, the underlying business model is, you know, commission split brokerage firm, which is how it's been since the 70s. And it's just not that interesting to me. Um, I didn't want to start this company and just build a commission split brokerage firm, you know, when that's been done. And I just don't really think that's the future of the industry because of a lot of reasons. But um I don't know. I think companies like Compass, even though they're doing great in recruiting agents, they're going to have a huge problem uh, in the next few years. All of the commission split firms that have a lot of overhead and their revenue, you know, is part of the commissions that their agents make. And the industry is getting so competitive that they have to cut their fees lower and lower to keep the good agents. They just don't. It's just not a good business model. And I know pretty much every commission split brokerage firm in America is trying to figure this problem out right now because the fees are starting to get compressed and that's their main source of revenue. And then the less their agents make, the less they make because they make a percentage of their fee. It's really crazy. I mean, most people don't think about it, but these firms are almost, it's like they have no incentive to drop the price for the consumers because they put themselves out of business. And I tell people this and they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, look, if a commission slip brokerage firm charges you 6%, they have zero incentive to charge you less because they go out of business eventually. It's like a race to the bottom. And the National Association of Realtors is the top three highest spending lobbying firm in America, which no one knows either. Are you serious? Top three. Oh, look it up. I'll send you a link to put in this notes. Like it's a cartel almost. And at this new firm, well, I guess I can kind of go into the, what we do at our firm now. It's so basically the premise behind the new firm is just cloud-based business model, super simple, no offices. So we save a lot of money, you know, on overhead. The staff is fully remote. The agents are fully remote. So our biggest expense really is, you know, our payroll. And then the fee structure is our agents just pay 
you know, a transaction fee. Some of them pay a monthly fee. We have a few different plans, but no matter what plan they're on, they keep a hundred percent of what they make. And so it's not a discount firm. There's a lot of firms that have come before us that are low fee, but really crappy service to the agents and things like that. So sometimes people are like, oh, it's a discount brokerage firm. It's not that at all. It's really, you know, a hybrid of this low fee model in like a new age world where technology is cheap. You don't have to have offices to be competitive. So there's like lots of things that are coming together, which is why we're able to do this right now. But we're essentially a full service firm with just a low cost structure to the agents. But our agents are still full time agents. So, yeah, we're trying to just build this hybrid model where it's low fee, full service, really cool tech, super easy to run the business. And we kind of think of the agents as our customers. So we're not trying to build like a consumer brand like Zillow or something like that. Like we're almost like a B2B brand where everything we do is thinking about like how can our agents be better? And then we think if our agents are better, it creates a better like customer experience, if that makes sense. Do you ever question yourself about the change taking place in the market or the business idea that you have? I mean, obviously, you have a very good track record. Anybody that knows you knows you're very sharp and you know your stuff. But to essentially be, to kind of call it the way you see it, that people won't have jobs in a few years in this industry to talk about how the model is broken, you, you don't hold back on saying what you really think and where you think the market's going to continue to move right? why your company puts the buyer or the seller in a better position, but ultimately why it also puts the broker in a better position. For sure. Why is it so clear to you and how did you see that? How did you see that change happen? Being at these traditional firms like Sotheby's and then Collective, we had a traditional structure there. It's like 85, 15 splits. Then being at Compass, you know, I was on a high commission split, but I was still on a commission split. And even though I had probably one of the highest splits that you could have at all of these companies, they still were taking so much money from me. And I didn't feel like it was justified. Like I still hired assistants. I had teams of people that helped me do stuff. I still paid for software outside of the brokerage. You know, and the these Firms would do some marketing for you and things like that. But outside of them taking money from me, I was also spending the other money to do my own marketing, to hire admins and assistants and all these things. And I was, you know, it just wasn't worth it at the end of the day. So you sit there and you're like, why am I paying all this? And then paying on top of it. And then they're still taking like 10 or 15% of what I make. And so like, I'm super convinced in what we're doing now because I've been a part of that. I didn't like it. And I'm a really reasonable person. And then also there's other companies that are building similar models to us. There's a couple that are publicly traded already and they're the fastest growing residential brokerage firms in the world right now. And a lot of people haven't heard of these, but one of them is called EXP Realty. They have 400,000 agents, don't they? EXP doesn't have that many. They, they, have tons and tons of agents and they add like thousands and thousands every quarter. Maybe it was 40,000. Yeah, it's more than that now. But Keller Williams is still one of the biggest by agent count because they're all over the world. But EXP growth wise is the fastest growing in the United States. And then they just launched internationally. But um, 
The industry's just gotten to a point too where agents don't need to be at like a big brand name firm to get business. Like you used to have to be associated with a firm to get clients because there wasn't the internet and there were all these reasons why the listings were private. Zillow kind of, I think, has been like the biggest innovation in the real estate space in the last 20 years because they put all the listings online and broke down the transparency between the public and the brokers. And the reason the fees were so high is because you literally used to have to hire a real estate agent to even know it was on the market. It was like this gatekeeper industry. And a lot of people to this day still try to operate like that. And it makes me laugh. Like your job isn't to find the freaking house. Like, like people that agents that tell me like they're finding the house. I'm like, if you think that's why you're important, you need to switch careers. But agents to me do play a huge role in like coaching people through it. How do the inspections work? What's this neighborhood like? Is there a school zone around the corner that I don't know about that screws up traffic in the area? How the hell do I get a mortgage? Like, who's a good handyman? That's why agents to me aren't going to be replaced anytime soon because their role is changing into this, like, they're like consultants almost. They're not home finders. Like any agent listening to this or anyone that tells you that they're important because they find the house, they really need to reconsider the way they think about it. Yeah. I guess what you're saying is there was all these barriers that prevented access, prevented knowledge, and people thought they'd access things a certain way to get that. And then in Zillow and others, but it kind of blew up that whole framework. And so, and I think being what you're saying is being an agent and being successful at it and seeing how much these big names charge took away from your commission. Right. But you're still having to drive it and invest your own overhead in it in the first place to run a top-notch organization. You've just stripped away the whole thing, the whole industry, the whole, the whole deal down to the basics. And really what the agent needs is to be supported. It needs technology. It needs access. It needs the legal protection, all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, that's it. And you believe that you're going to create or you are creating a top-notch cloud-based real estate agency around the country that is benefiting in a lot of different ways, but it's not necessarily on the steep fees to the agent. You're empowering them. You're keeping y'all's costs low, but then you're leveraging technology and data. And you're also yeah. you're also picking the best people around the country that take care of the client. And then therefore, those are the people that are going to really win in the marketplace. And then they're happy because their fees are minimal and y'all just are there to support them, which you felt like is the way it should have been in the first place. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, the brokerage industry started out because no one knew it was on the market and it hasn't really changed that much. And that's why the commission split is the way it is and all these things. But My thing is now in today's world, it's like if you're not trying to make the customers happy and building something that makes the customers happy, which in our case is the agent, then eventually you go out of business. Like Jeff Bezos, who I read everything he puts out, but he, you know, for 20 years, Amazon lost money because he was trying to save agents money. I mean, not agents. He was trying to make, you know, the prices on Amazon the lowest possible to make the customers, you know, the happiest. And I think about that a lot because it's like we're literally building a platform where it's like low cost. We want to be the cheapest cost to the agent in the entire industry, but still have great service and still have a full service firm. And it's like just in the last few years, is this possible because you can run a company in this cloud based way? There's 
tools and technology that we can use that now, you know, maybe cost $20 a month where five years ago, it was $20,000 a month. And we literally put our money where our mouth is. It's like, as the fees get compressed, if commission split or if the fee to sell a home in America drops, you know, from the standard kind of 6% now to 3% in a decade, we don't care. We, our company would still make the same amount of money because we charge a flat fee to the agent. We wouldn't start nickel and diming them. It'd be the exact same. It would be better for us because our company would explode in growth because agents would be looking to go somewhere else. If you know the fees were going down and their companies were still taking 10, 15%, no one's going to stay in an environment like that. And so that's why I'm so confident in what we're doing. It's Fee compression is happening all over the country right now. In different markets, it's worse than others. The number one reason agents move firms is over commission splits. And so, like, if we can do a good job providing service and support, our churn rate on agents should be close to zero. Um, I mean, people will leave for other reasons, but I don't think anyone's ever going to come to me and say, hey, I'm leaving because there's someone that's offering the same service for a lower price. No way. Like, I would love for someone to challenge us in that because we've literally built the company from the ground up in a way where that's just not possible. And I think a lot, a lot of the old school firms, I tell this story a lot, but, you know, like when, when a house flipper goes and remodels a house, you know, they buy an old house and they just put new paint, maybe a new roof on it and it make it look nice at the end of the day, it's still an old house. So like to me, like Keller Williams and Compass and all these legacy outdated business model firms, they're old houses with new paint and new electronics and bells and whistles. But underneath there, they still have a bad foundation, crappy plumbing and all these things. We've built the house, you know, ground up from scratch. We can build it however the hell we want. And we've built it in a way where our costs are super, super low. And the whole company runs in the cloud, which, you know, sounds cliche, but we were building this before the pandemic stuff started. And it truly is like the cheapest way to operate a business and real estate agents are on the go all the time anyway. So they don't really care about having an office. It's comical to me how much money companies like Compass and some of these other ones, we had a 20,000 plus square foot office in Dallas. On any given day, you walk in there where there wasn't a meeting, there'd be 25 people in there. Each person had a thousand square feet to themselves. I mean, like what you go to use the printer and get some free lemonade, you know I mean? Like that's just, <laughs> like, I think people would have rather have lower fees than some BS office space to like meet with their client. I don't know. Right. When they're not being paid to be there. Yeah. I was just trying to understand a little bit about the transformation that's taken place. And I was just reading a little bit about Rich Barton's history with Zillow and the other folks that, you know, he founded that with within Microsoft. But why do you think that was the most important change or innovation for the real estate industry within the last 25 or so years? Yeah, I mean, I think Zillow, the thing that people don't realize about Zillow is before Zillow was around, there was no way for the public to know what homes were listed unless, you know, you were looking in the classified section of the newspaper. So like, there were obviously real estate companies that would put out flyers and, you know, print things in the Sunday paper and you would have open houses and things like this, but there was no fully accessible, you know, kind of 
digital portal where you, Sam Coates, could just see every home that's on the market. And you basically have as much information as the real estate agent does about the house. And so like, you can go back and look at Zillow's early history, but when they launched, it was one of the most highly visited websites of all time in the first couple of days. They had like millions and millions of page views because homes are a part of everyone's life. It's super personal. It's not a like asset that people just buy and sell just to make money. You know, it means so much more than that. And so like people have this connection with their house. People are nosy about houses. They want to know how much their friends spend on a house. They want to know all these, there's all these like emotional ties to a house that's unlike any other asset. And Zillow just completely ripped the hood off that and gave everyone the same information. And, you know, obviously that's had a lot of changes on the industry, but I think there hasn't been as big of an innovation since Zillow, except I think Open Door, who created the iBind. I think that's, you know, a recent company, but I think that is kind of the, you know, more recent example of that, the next big change in the industry. Yeah. What'd you learn by moving out to Silicon Valley, working for Zero Down? You talked about relationships and seeing that pace of life. And then I think y'all did a pre-Series A round around 25 million or something like that. Can you speak to any maybe of the takeaways that you got there that helped you, you know, get started with Architect? Yeah, I think being in the Silicon Valley environment, I realized that it kind of like gave me confidence in, you know, going out and doing something completely on my own. I mean, you, you see a lot of these incredibly smart people, not even at our company, but just at lots of companies out there and lots of friends I made. Some of like the smartest people you've ever met. And there's, you know, it's very incredibly difficult to start a company from scratch. And so it's like you meet a lot of people that are, you know, I think that are way smarter than me that went to like, you know, Harvard, Dartmouth, all these schools. And they're having just the same, you know, amount of struggle and everything is, you know, everyone else is starting a company. So it kind of gives you this window into like, you know, it's super hard to start a company. You don't have to have some special background to do it. It's like having the confidence to do it and just go for it is something that I learned there. And then also something I learned there is Pure technology people don't understand all the nooks and crannies of the real estate industry. And I think that's why there hasn't been, you know, massive, massive change yet in this space, because from the outside looking in, everyone assumes that real estate agents are like stockbrokers and travel agents, and they're just going to go away to like Expedia.com and, you know, E-Trade. But in reality, there's so much more that goes into a real estate transaction than booking a trip to Jamaica or something. So... I think just the combination of me under me realizing I had sold or, you know, been a part of like a thousand real estate transactions in my life or more and had this insane like knowledge of an industry just because I'd done it for so long, not because I was like some super smart person. And then combine that with just the confidence, you know, and seeing other people kind of have trouble that I thought were like way smarter than I was. So so I guess you're saying to the trouble piece or the adversity piece, you're saying, I mean, it didn't matter who the person was or what the background was. There's a sense of just circumstances that kind of leveled the playing field to where there wasn't like a certain kind of person that could only start a company. And once right. you got out there, you felt comfortable in, in your own work ethic. You felt comfortable in the way that you were able to make decisions and think through things. And you felt like you had as good of a chance as anybody, especially when you're raising a fair amount of money. Yeah, I just kind of felt like 
I knew enough about the real estate industry. And honestly, when we first started, when I left Zero Down, I knew that I wanted to do something in the residential space. But honestly, I had thought about the brokerage route. I thought like I had lots of ideas in the beginning. Like we decided on going the brokerage route. But at one point we were thinking about just building software for real estate brokerages. So like it wasn't like I had this super fully baked idea when I left Zero Down. I knew like a few months before I left that, you know, there was a lot of opportunity in the industry. And once I left and spent, I mean, that was only last summer. Weird. That sounds weird to say. Like last June and July, when the world was really shut down and I would just walk around in circles in Austin (laughs) is when I really got confident about building this like new age brokerage model. And so we officially launched the brokerage like August 4th of last year. And so like just talking to other agents and friends and kind of like being unemployed for a couple of months, honestly, I just had a lot of time to think about it. And then ever since then, we're just super confident in it. And, um, you know, now we have 300 something agents. Yeah. And then the other pieces that you said, you were talking about software people don't know real estate. And I guess, are you saying there because the process can't be fully automated and you're dealing with, you know, with an attorney on a closing, you're dealing, you know, with people's emotions, you're dealing with their nostalgia about their home, you're dealing with the preferences between if there's multiple people in a family, like what somebody wants. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, no, I think like open door, which I think is one of the coolest companies in the real estate space that was started by pure technology people, you know, Keith or boy who had started PayPal, put together an incredible team and launched open door. They have built an insane company and they didn't have a lot of early real estate people on their team. But I think a lot of people that have just been in the, tech space primarily, you see lots of companies come into the real estate industry and try to build companies and do things. And so many of them go out of business just because they don't understand the inside track of all the things that go into a transaction and how like human it is still. Like, like I think the transaction process is horrendous. Like I'm not saying that I like how it is, but I do think that agents will be involved a lot longer than people think their roles will change and their fees will go down. A lot of people argue with me on this. They're like, real estate agents are going away. And I'm like, okay, maybe, but you're not going to go from 2 million plus agents to zero in like a year. So like there's an opportunity to build a lot of really big businesses during this transformation phase. And I just think agents will make less money. Yes, I do think that but they'll still be around. If agents make less money, there'll be less agents in the industry. So then those agents will have bigger market share. I truly think agents in like five years will make more money than they do now getting paid less on each deal, but they can do more transactions because they have cool tech. What do you mean by that? Cool tech. So like, I just think like agents will be more efficient. Like five years from now, I think an agent can do, you know, maybe one and a half times as many transactions as they do right now. Specifically, what kind of technology helps an agent do more deals? Yeah, so like as like the transact, like once you get contracts, like once you get a contract in a title company, there's so much work that goes into like from contract to close. And there's lots of the agent's time is just kind of bogged down in that process. So like 
even outside the residential like brokerage world, there's lots of automation happening on the title side, on the lender side. So I think like transactions will just become more efficient. So the agent's time will be less about like monitoring and managing that stuff. And they can spend more of their time just like marketing and going after new clients. And like marketing can be automated. Their time will just be more free. So even if they're selling, you know, homes at a less fee, like if we're in a lower fee environment, an agent might make more money than they do even in the low fee environment because they can handle more volume. That's just one example. But. And then the agents that are with a firm like yourself that are trying to be very mindful of the experience of the agent and then also stack technology in a way to make them as efficient as possible, they're happy because they're, they're able to handle more volume than someone at a different with a different group that prioritizes tech less and then therefore they're restricted more on the volume of what they're yeah, able I mean, to do. Yeah, I mean, honestly, right now, like, just even in like literally today's world, if you switched on average in America, the average agent in America does like nine transactions a year. So this is just generally speaking, if you were an agent at like a 70-30 split firm, if you switch today to our firm, you would make like 30 to 40,000 more dollars like this year. Like that's how much, like that's how big of a difference it is in our fee structure. And the service you get is on par or better. And then the other thing that I'm really adamant about is we're not trying to build software from scratch. So like a lot of people are like, you know, what makes it a tech company without your own software? And I'm like, I didn't say we were a tech company. We are a tech forward brokerage firm, like agent forward firm but I don't believe that we have to build software from scratch. Agents, you know, love things that work. They want things that are easy to use. There's incredible companies that we work with. And our whole thesis is we go out of our way to find the best tools in the market and we give them to our agents. And if a new tool pops up that doesn't exist right now, we'll just add it to our arsenal of like agent weapons. And so like I spend a lot of my time meeting with other companies and making partnerships and, Right now we're working on like a partnership with this cool company called Up Equity. That's like this new age mortgage firm. We don't want to build a mortgage company from scratch. Why the hell would we do that? We want to build a real estate firm. But if you look at companies like, I hate, I'm not picking on Compass, but like Compass, Keller Williams, all these other firms, they go and build everything from scratch. They spend millions and millions of dollars that a lot of the agents don't really care. So the value prop is not in the tech they're building. There's no brokerage firm today that is getting agents because of the tech. That's complete BS. That might be a reason they join in the first place, but it's not a reason they stay. At the end of the day, we just want to provide tools that the agents like to use. And I mean, agents recommend tools to us all the time that we haven't heard of. And then we kind of check them out and decide what to do. But if your fees are minimal from the agent, how do you have value as an entity itself? Is it just in the data? Yeah. So, I mean, our business model is stronger than, you know, a commission split model because we have a lot of recurring revenue. So we get paid, you know, one plan of ours is a subscription model where our agents pay a monthly fee no matter what they sell. So we kind of have this top producer plan, which is geared for a more higher producing agent where every month they pay us a couple hundred dollars whether you sell something or not, we literally take their credit card, gets charged every month. 
So it's like a subscription-based business model. We have another plan that's just a transaction fee only plan where that's a higher transaction fee and we don't get as regular of an income off that, but we still charge an annual fee to those agents and then a transaction fee. So our business model behind the scenes is much, much more stronger because we do have this predictable revenue stream. Um, whereas a traditional commission split brokerage firm has zero recurring revenue for the most part. You know, they have some with like tech fee. A lot of them have started nickel and diming their agents with all these fees. But um, yeah, our value, you know, we're not, I mean, we're not selling data or anything. I mean, honestly, like the way that our company becomes really big is we just launch in a lot of places and do a lot of volume and add a lot of agents. It's 100% a growth play. You know, right now we're in Texas and Louisiana. We're launching Florida and Arkansas by the end of the year. And then we kind of want to fill in like the Southeast. Yeah. So I guess what you're saying to that would be a traditional model on fees. They're going to ride the highs and then they're going to have the lows. But with right. something like yours, you're going to have reoccurring revenue streams constantly. And then the more agents you add, and then you're able to control your operation because you don't have these unnecessary things internally that add to the overhead. You're going to show cleaner profitability or more consistent income or you know, more consistent revenue. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, uh, we can scale our staff. You know, we have a lot of economies of scale because we don't have to have tons of staff to support our agents. Like when we launch a new market, we don't have to open an office and staff it up. Like all of our operations work remotely. So like when we launch Florida, we won't even have an office there. All of our back office stuff will happen online, you know, and, Things like that start adding up. So it's like, you know, an agent in Florida, they might be talking to someone in Dallas or California. We have, you know, people that work for us in San Francisco, but, you know, I think we can support a large number of agents with a really small staff. And then it's really easy to scale because we can just add, you know, to the oper to scale. All we need to do is add operations people. It's not uh, that difficult of a company to run. Hey everybody, we're going to take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors. After that, we'll get back to the show. Do you want to make efficient use with your time? Now more than ever, traveling hassle-free is harder to find. AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets jet card that gets you 10 or 25-hour flight options that makes your experience hassle-free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the U.S., Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S to travel on your own terms. This podcast is also sponsored by My Story. Have you ever thought about what if you could have your own audio and video interview for someone you love to keep and share for generations to come? What better way to keep and remember the life and story of someone you love than your loved one's own interview in their own voice. This is the perfect way to make sure your loved one's story stays with their descendants for future generations to come. 
Go to mystorytold.org to learn more. Again, that's mystorytold.org to learn more. Now we're going to get back to the show. Was it uncomfortable at first raising money and taking that money? No, so when I first started, um, I was confident in what we were doing. And then we raised, we've, we've raised some VC money from a firm in Los Angeles, Mucker Capital, which they're incredible. I really love working with them. But um, I talked to a lot of firms when we first started and Mucker was just kind of the most founder friendly and really understood what we were doing and has given me a lot of runway to build what you know we wanted to build and then they're there to help when they can we now are you know almost profitable and we haven't had to raise more money since our early fundraising efforts and you know i don't really care about raising more money if we don't have to like i'm not someone that you know gets hyped about saying we raised a series a i I think headlines like that are comical. It's like, okay, well, do you have any revenue or customers? I'd love to be able to build this business without raising more money. But if we need to raise more money to grow faster, there's some great firms that I keep in touch with that I would love to work with. But I spend as least amount of time as possible thinking about that because it doesn't really matter and I don't really care. But fundraising is fun when you're confident in what you're doing. If I wasn't confident in what I was doing, then I would feel bad taking people's money. But when I'm confident in what we're doing, it's, it's fun because, you know, I don't even pay myself a salary and all my upside is on my stock. So we're in the same game together. <laughs> yeah, you believe in it. Curious, you obviously talked to several different VC firms. You said you love working with Mucker Capital. They're founder friendly. Mm -hmm. Are there a few things there that make somebody like them stand out that make it a win-win and fun to work with? Yeah, I think they're a smaller fund. They don't have that many partners. They have a presence in Austin and LA, but I don't know. VC VC is a funny world. Um, there's so many funds now and there's so many firms and they're all trying to do different things. And at the end of the day, I think you just have to find ones where you enjoy the partners and, you know, feel like you can just, text them or call them whenever you want. I mean, I know friends that have raised money from firms that they are not helpful at all. And the firms just want updates and want to know how they're doing, but they don't want to help. So I don't know. I was kind of against raising VC money from the beginning, but these guys convinced me otherwise. <laughs> helpful. And what, like, what are some examples that stick out to you? I mean, you obviously know how to run the business. You know the business. What are things that they're helpful in that or beneficial in that relationship. Yeah, just they, you know, they've worked with lots of companies that have grown way, 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 way bigger than us. Um, like they were early investors in Honey, which was acquired by PayPal. They've invested in some really cool companies. So I just like being able to talk to them about like growth and how to think about those things and like what adds value to the company, what doesn't. And they, they've run businesses before too. So that's helpful. Like you feel like you're constantly learning by talking to them. You know, like sometimes I'm like, hey, like, should we hire this kind of person or should we not hire that person and put the money into digital marketing or, hey, should I don't, yeah, just things that I've never done that they're on the same team. And it's not like me calling up, you know, some 60 year old guy that's 
sold three companies that doesn't really understand today's world. <laughs> like they're like living the environment right now where I'm like, hey, should we stay fully remote or should we open little coffee shop type offices for our agents? That was a real question. No, Sam, it's a cloud-based company, you moron. Don't open physical stores. Yeah. <laughs> but th- just things like that. So, But it sounds like, I guess what you're saying, they trust you. They kind of know your background and they want, they want you to grow it. Yeah. How, how you're going to grow it, but you trust them. So it's not like you're having to live out their standards or their expectations. Obviously they want a certain return on it, but right. kind of they're they're betting on the person and they're betting on your experience and they're kind of wanting you to to get to where you need to be on your own time frame. Oh for sure. I mean early early stage VC investing is betting on the person 100%. I mean our company's changed three times since they invested really. So yeah, I mean I think the early stage venture guys know that they're betting on a person in a market essentially. It's like how big is the market? Like, even if you're the greatest guy in the world, an early stage venture capital guy is not going to give you money to like start a popcorn stand or something, you know? Yeah. Uh, like what, subscription. It, what about subscription? Like, uh, yeah, big, big market, smart or knowledgeable industry person usually can be a good place to bet. But that's what's so hard about venture investing. Um, Big companies go out of business all the time and ones you've never heard of go public. So, yeah. Is it awkward in any way, you know, going back to your kind of your track record as an agent, your success there, kind of starting from scratch and trying to persuade or recruit agents in these markets to join your firm? Is that humbling in any way, kind of being on the other side of it? Oh, yeah. I mean, When I started this new company, you know, lots of people that I used to work with, again, are thinking I'm crazy again. Now this is the second time people are thinking I'm crazy. Uh, (laughs) Left Dallas, San Francisco. Oh, he's back. Started this new thing. Oh, it's this low fee brokerage firm was like what everyone would say in the beginning. Like, oh, discount brokerage. It's like, okay, it took us six months to overcome that. But yeah, I mean, a lot of people that I used to work with are love the luxury. Like what we're doing now is we're, I feel like we're playing in a different part of the market. So Compass obviously attracts like luxury, higher end part of the market. With this firm right now, we're kind of a sector agnostic. We don't really care. We It's more like a mid, you know, mid market type firm. So it's like, I think we'll grow in all kinds of directions, but we don't really care what types of homes people sell or price point or anything like that. So like my old life is more on the luxury high end end of things. So like the agents I used to work with, you know, they like that brand and that vibe, but I think a lot of them will eventually move to firms like us as well. Um, It'll just take me like two or three more years of convincing them. But honestly, I don't spend a lot of time trying to convince people that I used to work with to switch. I don't think that's a good use of my time. And we're trying to build really like a product type company where, you know, my ideal thing is, you know, in a few months, we're waking up in the morning and people are signing up while we're sleeping. And that happens some right now. But like we want to build a fully digital, you know, experience where an agent can literally sign up. They know everything about the company and they can switch their license automatically. And so our approach with this company is way more like 
digital marketing, kind of just going after agents that want a place to put their license, low cost, like they kind of just get it. It's like, we're not going to tr- spend a year trying to recruit someone. You either get it or you don't. You like what we're doing. So it's kind of a different piece of the market. But I, yeah, I love to talk trash to people I used to work with, for sure. <laughs> but what are the things, what are the principles or what are the themes that you're seeing that you're putting in place to try to understand the agents out there around the country that are available, interested in Slash would be a good fit. How, how have you been able to kind of identify that through software? Technology? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a lot of it is, it, lots of agents are constantly searching for like lower fee firms and things. And so a lot of our like search traffic, or the, like those agents that just come in like organically, they're searching things like 100% commission brokerage or low fee brokerage. And if you go search that, like on your computer, you'll see how bad, like those, there's all these low fee firms that are literally just like licensed warehouses, people call them, where it's literally just a place to put your license so you're legal, but there's no service, there's no support. They get to keep a lot of the money, but it's not like a firm at all. So like, there's a lot of just natural search traffic that goes towards these keywords that we target. And so when people see those keywords or when they search that keyword and then they land like on our site, they're like, wow, like this is the low fee, but you get the service. So like, I think we're kind of like tapping into this thought that I think people have in their head and you know, the 100% commission thing is not new, but the combining the low cost and the service is a new thing. And so like, really, we're just finding agents that kind of, you know, are entrepreneurial or, you know, we have a lot of people that are, you know, maybe house flipper type. We have a lot of interesting agents. It's not all just like your traditional agent that's selling homes in Chickasaw Gardens. Like, I mean, we have people that are, you know, builders that want their license. We do have lots of just traditional agents that sell homes, you know, all over Texas and Louisiana. But like, we have one guy, that focuses on like land deals. Like we have some commercial brokers, we have part-time people, we have full-time people, we have people that have big teams. It's like, we don't have a lot of rules around like what people sell, which would blow your mind, but a lot of firms have rules around stuff like that. Cause they weeded them out because then they want the most amount of fees back to the agency. But in your mind, you don't care because you just get either a one-time fee or you get an yeah, annual yeah, like subscription. And so you don't care. Like, a lot of firms like Compass, Sotheby's, Berkshire, they want to recruit top producer agents because those people are doing high volume. So like, you know, I used to sell a high volume dollar amount of homes. So like the company made a decent amount of money off me, even though I had a high split. I was doing so much volume that they want agents like that makes the firm look better. They bring in a lot of business. So they get a higher percentage of that fee. To me, the guy selling 20, $50,000 houses is worth just as much as the guy selling 20, $20 million houses. And that's what people can't wrap their head around. Like on the business model, it's like, I don't care if you're a house flipper guy in Beaumont, Texas, or a top producing agent in Highland Park in Dallas. Like, we don't care. So we don't spend a bunch of money marketing towards these high-end agents and wooing them with all this BS. Like, the customer acquisition cost to us is the same whether you're a house slipper guy in Beaumont 
or high end agent in Dallas. So like, so what's wrong with the house flipper guy in Beaumont? The house flipper guy in Beaumont's awesome, and <laughs> I want more people like that because they do tons of transactions. And yeah, I'm just saying like it's funny when I explain that to people. They're like, well, don't you want like a certain type of you know like property or listing? And I'm like, no, like. I want people that like what we're doing and want to save money. Like, I don't care if you sell beach houses in Galveston or if you sell $20 million lake houses in Austin. I really, we really don't care. Just, you know, fill out the paperwork the right way and don't get us in trouble. Why are you focusing on middle market versus higher end market? Honestly, there's, we don't, like I was saying, we don't care about the ritzy luxury agents. So like why compete in a space where there's so many people we want to focus on states like Arkansas, Louisiana, you know, other states throughout the Southeast because they don't get as much attention with newer age brokerage models. So like in Shreveport, for example, we were the newest firm there, you know, in a long time. There's no one doing anything innovative like we're doing So we're able to recruit a lot of agents just organically, just by, you know, doing what we're doing. So like, I'm leaning into this idea that, you know, like I think Little Rock, Arkansas will be a good spot. I think like Birmingham, Alabama would be a good city, like Jacksonville, Florida. Like we want to go to places where there's lots of agents, but there's not lots of like luxury presence and on the lower end price range, the agents care even more about saving money because they don't make as much money. So like if you're a agent in a lower price point market, just by nature of the market, you don't make as much money just because, you know, there's not as high dollar homes. So those people saving 10 to $30,000 a year, that might be, you know, 30, 40% of what they're used to making. We're like on the high end, those guys make so much money that it's a different like psyche. For those people that listen to this, that don't know what Y Combinator is, what is it? And is it helpful from a startup standpoint? So basically Y Combinator was started by this guy, Paul Graham. And it was basically one of the first accelerator, startup accelerator programs in the country, which basically just means you have an idea, you apply to the accelerator, they give you some money and then they help you kind of think through it and hopefully it becomes a big company. With YC has emerged as kind of like the, you know, top, top accelerator program in the world. Like some of the biggest companies in the world have come out of Y Combinator, like Airbnb is a, you know, pretty relevant example. But the founders of the companies are the ones that are really like emerged in that. But just being at a company that was a part of that and being around guys that were in that and like, meeting other Y Combinator type companies. You know, like I've met a lot of friends in Austin that were at other YC, like it's a great network of people. And just being at a company that was connected to that helps you meet a lot of other great people. I mean, it's kind of like what I think the reason going to like an Ivy League school is better than going to another school. It's not because you necessarily get a way better education, but you meet these crazy people that you wouldn't have met somewhere else. So like, I think, you know, YC is changing a lot right now, but um, like if someone has an idea, like honestly for this new company, I applied to YC and we didn't get in. I mean, but that happens all the time, but I submitted an application to Y Combinator for the archetype company, but we didn't, we didn't get in. What would, what value do you think it would have given you if you got in? 
I just think it's a good, just the networking side. I mean, I kind of just wanted to be in there, you know, with my own company, but I don't know if we'd be in a different spot. Like I don't, it, a lot of people get hung up like on why combinator and accelerators and fundraising. And it really drives me crazy. It's like people think if they can't raise money, like they're not successful. And that like, I'm like super adamant about telling people that's ridiculous. Like, you shouldn't try to just raise money if you don't have an idea. And then even then you should try to like build the company a ways before like raising money. But I don't know. So to go back a little bit, you're saying that you're adding value to these agents in these lesser known markets where the sales price of the homes are less. They feel any sort of fee savings to them they appreciate that more. And then there's less agencies opening up in these markets. So essentially that's the demographic that you found. And you said that you have about 300 agents now. Is there anything that you've learned at this point about a year in that's most important to you when you're going into these markets, what you have to do if you're going to be able to, to grow your agent count in those markets versus like go in there and just stall out? Well, so one thing we've kind of been working on recently is just really focusing on like what we offer the agents and like streamlining that. Like we were starting to go a bunch of different directions with like services and things we were doing. And we're trying to right now, like really consolidate like our offering, make it super easy to understand. We're in the process of redoing our website. We're redoing a lot of things kind of behind the scenes right now that will be done with by the end of the year. But honestly, I think launching Florida will learn a lot because that'll be kind of the farthest state away that we've launched remotely. So I think we'll learn a lot there, but I think we've got kind of our plan, like with the digital marketing, we have that figured out. We really just have to keep adding states to kind of see, you know, there's some different things that happen when you go into a different state, just with the laws and things like that. But the cool thing is, is like you, we know what we're doing is legal in all 50 states. Like, you know, it's very like scalable because it's, you know, it works the same in every state pretty much. To grow faster, you need more money. But like, it, there's no like unknown to me to how this gets really big. There's lots of competition popping up. So like, we're just trying to go as fast as we can. But honestly, like I'm not, I'm not hung up on the, building like a billion dollar company, you know, which seems to be like what everyone thinks you have to do to be successful. Like I'm fine if we build the company into four to 10 States and then sell it. Like this is not the last company I will do. <laughs> um, yeah. And our team is on like, this isn't a secret to our company. Like I tell them this all the time. It's like, let's everyone, you know, everyone that works for me has stock. And we're all on the same page. And like, I don't, I'm not trying to sit here and say that I want to like be in this company for 10 years. Like I want to build something quickly that has a big impact that changes the industry in some small way. But like, I don't need to be the next Zillow. Like if that happens then that's sweet, but like, I'm not, that's not like my expectation. Like my expectation with this company is build something that works, you know, have a nice return for our investors and then have a great outcome for my people that work for us, make sure the agents are happy and then, you know, go do something else. Like it's not a financial goal for me. It's a outcome. It's like very binary. Like 
I want it to be successful, but there's not like some number in my head that equals success. Yeah. From an adoption standpoint, how many years do you think it'll take for agents to fully see the potential and opportunity they have moving to a minimal cost brokerage cloud-based company? I think next year, like I think 2022, you'll see lots of agents moving around. This year, agents have been so insanely busy just nationwide that they don't even have time to think about moving. I think the market will be slower next year. And like, honestly, when things are slower, agents move more. And I'm not saying I want us to go into like a recession or something, obviously, but like if the market slows down, we'll grow more because agents are making less money. So they're more cognizant of cost. So like that was a question we got a lot when we were fundraising, like, well, what happens if there's a 2008 recession? And I'm like, well, I think we would grow 10 X because people are more worried about dollars and we're saving them money. So like, We'll see what happens if that happens while we have this company. But um, I think when things are slower, we'll grow more. I don't want things to slow down, but it's slowing down right now. I mean, the inventory is completely jacked up nationwide. Yeah. I couldn't find really any good data on this. I mean, I saw that a few other people out there, Fathom, EXP, I think that's right. I think EXP, I said 400, but I guess it was 40,000. Are there a lot of new agencies starting up around the country similar to your model there's a lot yeah like fathom and exp are two of the biggest there's another one called real it's a cool company cloud-based firm there's still a commission split brokerage but i like what they're doing there's a really cool company called avenue eight in san francisco that's similar to us there's a company called side that's out of san francisco that's really cool they're kind of a they're still focused on the higher end side of the industry, but I really like what they're building. There's a lot, like I love the iBuyers, like I love Open Door. There's lots of like competition that's not directly like traditional brokerage firms. So like, it's not like everyone, like I'm just thinking about brokerage firms. Like I think like Zillow is a competitor. Um, I think Zillow will launch their own brokerage. I don't know why they haven't. But yeah, I think there's lots of companies and things happening. It's not just other brokerage firms. So, But would you say, I mean, this is just an assumption or an observation, the value that you have with this company is that because of your track record as an agent, you can understand the nuances and the ins and outs of the business, of the what it's like to be an agent, and you can imp- build that process as good as anyone possibly can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I think. Like, I'm just kind of building what I wish that I had. I mean, honestly. Like, so you feel you feel totally comfortable and you've been very outspoken and open in this interview, but you feel very comfortable with what you're doing and who you are because you, you feel confident in your knowledge. Yeah, like I'm building a setup that I wish that I had and like I would love to work at our company. And like if I didn't feel like that, then I would change things pretty drastically. But yeah, like if I worked at our company right now, I would have a lot more money than I do Um, just because you save so much money. And it's like, I talk to our agents all the time. Like I'm very involved and I'm not involved in like process day to day stuff. But yeah, I think successful companies, the person who's running it, like should spend their time talking to people that work there. Like People that are involved in the day-to-day processes, you have to do that to a certain point, but that's not worth your time. And that's why like our staff and the people that work for us are incredible. Like 
we have an insane team for being as small as we are. And everyone has some sort of, you know, not everyone has real estate experience, but like 70% of our team on the staff side has been in the real estate industry for as long or longer than I have. When you think about adoption, when you think about people changing, and this is more from the agent standpoint, is there a favorite example or case study that you have, one or two, that helps you keep things in perspective and playing the long game, you know, just being only a year in? Yeah, the thing that I love the most that I talk about a lot or I've written about is not like our company, but I think the residential brokerage industry is super similar to um, like Blockbuster Video and Netflix. It's like, it couldn't be more similar. Like Blockbuster was the dominant brick and mortar, come to our store, rent your stuff. They were around forever. Netflix comes along, they're digital, you know, through the mail. They started off in the mail, but we'll call that old school cloud-based in the mail. And then it went, they, you know, were the first company to stream content over the internet, fully cloud-based. At one point, Blockbuster had a chance to buy Netflix for like $50 million. (laughs) Yeah, like the Reed Hastings guy. I mean, I have read everything I can about that, but it's the same exact thing to me where the innovator's dilemma, Clayton Christensen, this Harvard professor, talks about this all the time. But basically, it's like big companies fail to innovate because like what they're doing has been working for so long that they can't see like what they need to do to like build for the future. And so like that is exactly what happened to Blockbuster. They're like, we see this company, Netflix, but like they don't know how to combat it. And then by, by the time they figure it out, it's too late. And I think that's what's happening in the residential real estate industry right now. And by the time these companies like Berkshire and Keller Williams and all these things figure it out, in five years, I think some of these firms will be almost out of business. You're saying out of business because these national companies, you're probably not talking about local companies, but national companies or even regional where their total P&L is built off a specific way of doing it. They're too big and they can't adjust. Yeah, they can't adjust. Their cost is too high, too fixed. They can't move quickly. And the agents will just leave. I mean, agents are all independent contractors. They can leave a firm tomorrow. There's no, I mean, there's contracts at some firms. We have to pay back some things, but you're not on a salary. So like you're a free agent at all times. And that's why commission split firms aren't valued very high. There's no contracts. There's independent contractor agreements, but like, it's not like Sam Coates gets paid $100,000 a year to be at Sotheby's, you know? And so like, I think by the time some of these legacy firms pivot and figure out how they could stay around, it's the same thing as Blockbuster. Blockbuster had more money than anyone. They could have built Netflix. I mean, it happens all the time, borders, you know, like bookstores and then Amazon. And it's when companies are getting criticism or people are saying like, oh, like that's crazy. Then like that's always means you're onto something because if it were super obvious, like everyone would be working on it. I mean, it I don't know, plays out over and over. History always repeats itself and everyone's always surprised. So like, I don't know, maybe I just see things differently, but it doesn't seem that difficult. Would you have been in a worse position if you raised more money than what you did? Or do you think you've been in a better position? I don't know. The more money you raise, the more pressure you have. And we could, like, I mean, I could have taken more money for sure. But um, we haven't been burning tons and tons. Like, since we're not like 
building tons and tons of software and we don't have like 30 engineers on salary, like I wouldn't have wanted to take that much money because then the valuation goes higher and then the expectations are higher. Like, and there's, I don't there's, that's, that's hard. There's pros and cons to the fundraising stuff. But I guess now you're saying you're in a position to where you raised minimal amount of money with people with good reputation and you've proven the model and right. you've minimized your cash burn. You've opened up three markets. You're about to hit two more. You've continued to see the needs within the operation and the software. So you've been able to really kind of dial it in. And now you've put yourself in a position to where if you really wanted to ramp it up quickly, you could do so. Uh, yeah, like that's the hard thing. I, I, I hate when I see companies raise a bunch of money and they have these high valuations. And I don't know if the founders understand what that means. Cause it's like, if you take on this super high valuation, then you just have to grow into the valuation and exceed that. You know, like as soon as you get a valuation in the 50 to hundred million dollar range, they expect you to be a billion dollar company, you know, cause they want a 10 X VCs want a 10 X or hundred X their investments. And so a lot of founders think it's cool to get these high valuations, but if it's not warranted and if you're not making the revenue, I really think it crushes the companies and they don't realize it for years because they're so excited about raising the money. They don't understand how the valuations work. I don't, that's like a big problem. I think about a lot, like the fundraising stuff's getting out of control. Yeah. What do you think gives you a sense of peace or maturity to kind of be comfortable in how you want to build it? Because it seems like a lot of people, and I can even relate to this in my own life in certain ways to where you must feel this pressure or internal pressure, or maybe it's insecurity or ambition, whatever it might be to like put more pressure on yourself than maybe what's necessary. What gives you the peace or kind of the confidence to kind of build things at your own pace, still do it aggressively, but do it and feel like you don't have to be influenced by external things? Yeah. Well, I mean, the way that we raise money so far is we don't have a board, you know, so there's literally no external pressure besides my own pressure that I put on myself and the company, but there's no like legal pressure. There's no, there's no one like telling me what I can or can't. That was a big thing for me in the fundraising. I was like, I don't, I will not add people to our board or anything right now because I, I, we might want to change the decision, you know, the path of the company quickly or do something new quickly. If you start adding people to the board and all these things early on crushes you people that are investors, they don't understand like day-to-day problems and they never will. And they think they do. And a lot of them just like to tell people what to do because they like controlling people. But that was a big thing for me. Like I put in a significant amount of money that I've made too. So that's unique. And I know a lot of people can't do that, but I told investors that, you know, like, Hey, I've put in X amount of my own money and I pay myself nothing. And I, by doing that, I still own a large percentage of the company, but that's where I'll make money. I don't care about an $80,000 salary the next three years, which I completely understand that is not normal. And I think that's also a benefit though of starting a company after you've had a lot of success doing other stuff. Like I couldn't do that if I were starting this, you know, 10 years ago, but. Yeah. And I guess another thing you're playing into the future for, I mean, when you were talking, I was thinking about a friend of mine who's a developer and, you know, he wanted to get his license to handle some stuff for some friends but and obviously to do his own stuff 
but you're just opening up the gig economy around the country. You're also adding value to a lot of people around the country that could take advantage of having their license. Right. And take advantage of your network. And so your work too, it's in line from a gig economy standpoint, from a flexibility to a lot of people, whereas a traditional bigger agency would never hire these people because they're going to want to charge them top money fees. And then they're only going to want them to produce a certain amount of volume, but you're kind of opening it up to the masses. Is that another fair? Yeah. Way yeah. To I mean, that one plan that we have is a lot of like part-time agents and people like that. Yeah. A lot of firms will take part-time people, but they'll give them these ridiculous splits. So like, it doesn't really make it, you know, like, if you sell one house a year and they take 30%, like, you know, what's the point? Um, I mean, it's, you still make money, but like, yeah, you're exactly right. Like with us, you can sell one or two houses a year and it's still, you know, we still make some money and then they're happy because they only paid like a thousand dollars in fees or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, we have lots of home builders that have their license with us. Yeah. Are there any other changes on the horizon in this space that you see that we haven't talked about today? I think like the title and mortgage side will change a lot and become way more efficient. I would love to build a company in the title space after this. That's a whole, that could be a whole nother podcast, how yeah. outdated that is. But no, I mean, I think there's lots of things changing, not just on the brokerage side, but on the title side and the stuff, the side that people don't see. Like I'm a huge believer in like the blockchain stuff. I'm not like a cryptocurrency guy. I own zero crypto, but the underlying tech, the blockchain, there's a lot of applications for that with real estate transactions. And it's super complicated. Again, I don't think someone outside the real estate industry is going to figure that out. I think about that one probably 20% of my day every day, which I probably shouldn't, but (laughs) (laughs) that's something I would love to do after this. Something in the title side. Yeah. It just sounds like you, and I know we we hadn't talked about it and probably not enough time for it, but it was a challenge for you early on. You loved real estate for certain reasons. You had a lot of success at it early on. You liked doing it your own way, but you've always had a brain or a mind that looked to make things more efficient or to solve things or to make them better. And ultimately that was strong enough to you and your own personal wiring to where you're like, screw this, I will literally leave this security yeah. and this economic prosperity, and I'm going to go out and t- kind of the wild, wild west of entrepreneurship. Oh, for sure. It's definitely the wild west. Like, I'm not, like, this is not easy at all. Like, it feels way better now because we're, like, pretty stable. But, yeah, the first, like, six months, you're like, why, is this the right thing to do? Should I have done this? Like, what if this doesn't work out? But then you're like, it's not like you're going to fail in like a week. Like you usually have time to figure it out. And as long as you're not burning like tons and tons of money, you give yourself like a long runway. But yeah, like when I've left zero down, I was like, I'm going to start something. And you're not 100% sure what it is, but you kind of know you want it to be a brokerage or you're not really sure how or why. I mean, but even since those first couple months, like our fee structure and all these things, I mean, they're changing like we're, we're tweaking it again right now. No one even notices that, but I mean, we're constantly like changing little things. Yeah. But, and I guess what you're saying here with this episode, you see specific need in the marketplace and you see a specific way to make it happen. 
and you see the value that it'll unlock for a lot of people and then also the value that it'll provide to somebody at some point in a larger yeah. way and you're just fixated on that and then once you get done with that whenever that whenever that happens you'll move on you'll take time off and then you'll move on to the next problem to solve and i guess that's the difference between you and 99% of everyone else that wants security or wants to do the same thing or wants to be told what to do or wants to build something within the parameters of someone else you just see things and you want to create something to make it sure. what it, what it could be and then move on yeah and like there's no timeline on the moving on point like i just know that it's not like we're old a lot of people that our age think they're like old when they're like in their 30s i'm like you know, like Mark Benioff didn't start Salesforce till he was 35. And like Peter Thiel had like a whole career before he started PayPal. Like, I don't know. I just think about things like that. Like Bezos didn't start Amazon until he was like 31. And I'm not saying we're building companies like that. But a lot of people in today's world think if you're not like Mark Zuckerberg, like building a company when you're 19, like you have no shot at doing it. Like, I think people are better suited to build companies in their 30s and 40s. Like that's almost the sweet spot because you're confident in what you've been doing, but you're not like too set in your ways, but you don't see the future. Like 30s and 40s, you know enough about how things work, but you also know enough about the future where like, I think people will have a better shot of being successful in those two decades than they do right out of college. Cause when you're right out of college, you don't really know anything. Um, but that's like this culture in America. That's like, you have to be 19 to 20 or like, you're never gonna build a company. And so, like, I just know that I'm smart enough to, like, figure it out. And, like, I'm not afraid to take risk. And that might just be something that's wrong with me. But I think that is a big distinction that I haven't figured out. Some people can handle lots of risk. And to what, I, what I'm doing to me doesn't seem super risky. But, like, just people listening to this, like, some people think I'm crazy. You know, like, I, I talk to friends a lot about this. They're like, I just don't know how you stomach it. And I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't know how you guys sit at JP Morgan all day for 10 hours and get told what to do. Like I would get fired from that place in four <laughs> hours. I would show up with what I'm wearing right now, what I wear all the time. And they'd be like, get the hell out of here. Yeah. <laughs> no, I hear you. What do you think would have happened if you wouldn't have left? If you would have stayed and did what you did in San Francisco? No. In Dallas. Oh, like with the brokerage stuff. Yeah. I think I would have left by now. Yeah. I was like looking at all kinds of stuff. I wasn't like, I didn't, I wasn't like interviewing for jobs. Like I was looking at like buying small businesses and like I had bought some real estate properties at the time. I had started doing some other stuff towards the end of my time there because I was kind of bored. Hey everybody, since you've made it this far in the show, I wanted to share with you something that you may love. A few months ago, I was asked to interview a close friend's grandmother who's in her 90s. She lives outside of the United States, and this was a way to get to the heart of her and capture her life in a way that could stay with the family for generations to come. This interview was an absolute blast, and it brought tremendous joy and value to this family. Since then, I started doing this for others. If you have someone you love or know of someone whose story and life you'd love to capture in an interview, go to mystorytold.org to learn more. My team and I would love to discuss this with you further. Finally, thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Driven By Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review. Please subscribe to the show and you can follow me on social, on Twitter and Instagram to join me for future episodes of the Driven By Podcast. Hope you have a great week and see you next time.